and a one and a two and a one two three welcome welcome to house of strauss this particular edition i call it industry talk because one ryan glass spiegel the new york post and i talk a little bit about the industry a little bit about whatever how you doing ryan I'm doing good. I'm doing good. My Badgers are in a heated matchup, so I'll try and keep my emotions in check. I, I prefer to interpret that literally as opposed to it being a name <laughs> of any kind of sports team and just, uh, I don't know, uh, hypothesize about whatever life you lead, whatever pets you might have. Now, you, sir, you, sir, are riding high. You made, I am. You made I am. a prediction. I did. So I was in a... Uh, um, round table with a bunch of big wigs like a lot of people like bigger than me like all the sports media reporters mark cuban was in it and it was basically predict the viewership of the super bowl and why i predicted 113 million which is like the second or third biggest total audience of all time and i said it was because out of home viewership would propel it even though it wasn't the sexiest matchup like last year it was up 15% from last year. But um, I did that because I thought that out-of-home viewership, which really only got put into the equation last year and counts people for the first time ever who are watching it, like bars, restaurants, parties, you name it, wherever you watch the Super Bowl. And so I was like, that number is going to be way bigger this year than last year. Because a majority of the Super Bowl, I mean, a majority of the country, including the people flagrantly violating the mask mandate at the Super mm-hmm. Bowl, we'll are just that. done with being told by officials what we can and can't do. And so I, I factored that in. It was going to be bigger, a lot bigger than last year. And I was only, I was off by like one half of one percent on my guests. I guessed. 113 million and it came in at 112.4 that's pretty good i mean usually when you miss by 600,000 it's not so great but considering (laughs) the numbers that we're talking about pretty damn great and it would seem it would seem that the numbers are juiced so it's confusing it's hard to really parse what's happening and explain it to people so what is your take because i've seen takes on viewership was actually down uh, but the numbers are juiced versus viewership is up. I mean, is this a good number uh, for the yeah, NFL? Number, it's the biggest number they've gotten in total since 2017. That was like the thrilling Tom Brady comes back from down 28 to three matchup Patriots Falcons. This was a good matchup for like several re- a good number for several reasons. I mean, you know, you we we talk about the NBA all the time. And if they have, like, a lemon of a finals matchup, all of a sudden it can be, like, half off its relatively Mm. recent high. And people will explain, oh, well, it was a bad team. But this year was... um, Terrible matchup. Terrible. Not exactly, like, the two sexiest franchises. The, like, Cowboys, the Steelers, they're not. The Packers, etc., and it, it, it's all newcomers, um, at least in the championship scene. The Rams had been in the Super Bowl a few years ago, but they didn't win. And nobody, and LA doesn't people have, like, care about fans the or anything. It was getting compared to Mahomes versus Brady. Yeah. And so to be up 15% from that, when those metrics were compared on the same juice playing field, is a big deal. 
Yeah. No, I think it's overall a positive story for the NFL. They have a grip on America. And it's funny, again, we forget, we definitely forget that there are all these think pieces and all these important publications about how this sport was going to be on the outs. And now when you talk about its dominance, it's just dismissed as that's just football. You know, any other sport just dismisses football uh, dominating it as that's just football. What can you do now? I want to touch on the cultural aspect. I, I almost wrote about it. I decided not to. Maybe it was a mistake. Maybe I should have. I don't know. But I wrote this article on Leah Thomas called Clay Travis is your fault. And it was addressed towards the media. And the basic message is you might hate this guy. I get it. He's an asshole. He's boorish. I understand it. But if you cede exceedingly normal positions to him, not just conservative or right wing positions, but just normal person positions, especially normal sports fan positions, he will be very successful and it will not be entirely difficult. And and I was reminded of that during the Super Bowl as I'm watching and I, I give a glance at Twitter and I apologize if I if I missed anybody doing this, if there was somebody in. ESPN media or Sports Illustrated who was doing this and I missed it, but I didn't see it. I did see from Clay Travis pointing out the absolute striking hypocrisy of all these celebrities at the game, uh, yucking it up maskless in a county, in a city where children will not get to breathe so freely. And it, it was yet another one of those, hey, everybody in the media, they love when sports and an issue of controversy collide, in theory, uh, they're going to talk endlessly about, I don't know, the demography of NFL head coaching, you know, right or wrong. They're going to talk about it a lot. This seems to be an obvious take. This seems to be something where if you put it to the American people and said, hey, how do you feel about uh, celebrities at a stadium uh, just defying a mask mandate and they get to do whatever they want, but kids just you know, apparently, I don't know if it's in perpetuity or whatever, uh, will not get to be so free. What do you think about that? I don't think that poll is coming back with most people saying, yeah, the celebs should do whatever they want and the kids should continue with these onerous restrictions. So uh, that was a thought that I had. And Ryan, did you notice anybody in, in, in larger, broader media making that obvious connection? Uh, or was it just Clay? I, well, I think I noticed it. I mean, like, I think Will Kane did. So I think, like, several people in the um, center right sports lane did, but those aren't people who work at, you know, ESPN, CBS Sports, Fox Sports, you know, TNT, the rights holders. Oh, well, yeah. I guess, you know, I, you know, Clay and Will are technically at Fox. But they're in a different bucket there. Yes. Yeah. That's not an unpopular thing to say. Frankly, I don't think it's an unpopular thing to say in Blue World. I think people don't like hypocrisy. I think the normal I think well, the normal yeah. Democrat voter doesn't like how that looks. And there was something to me that was so absurd about, oh my God, is Eminem going to take a knee? Is he going to take a knee? He might take a knee. The NFL might not, not like it if he takes a knee versus this issue, which is front and center, which is huge as far as why the Democrats got their ass kicked in the 2021 election and will probably be a major factor in what happens in 2022 if it ever comes back again. I, I don't know. It's a little bit hard to predict. And so, again, sort of like Leah Thomas, it was a hear no evil, see no evil, speak no evil situation. I'm not saying I want a sports media that is obsessed 
with the political issues and obsessed with dragging sports into it. But to me, it just seems so obvious. I was at a Super Bowl party. I was just, oh my God, they're just panning around to everybody. And it felt like the fucking Hunger Games because they had the kids in pregame all masked up performing before the game happened. And then you see all the celebrities who don't have to deal with that. And I just don't think, I don't think if you put a poll to most people that they think that's that's cool and that's okay. Yeah, no, I agree with that. Um, the one caveat that people will say, and this may or may not be a personal dispute I have, uh, but kids under five can't be vaccinated. And so what I would say is in this argument is when you look at the data of how many kids are dying from COVID and it's very small compared to other things like car accidents and other causes of death and shootings even. Um, But you could say, okay, well, they don't have the chance to be vaccinated because it hasn't been approved yet. And so that would be like the argument for masking kids, but not adults. I don't subscribe to it though. And I certainly, if they're going to have the rule and everyone flagrantly violates it. It um, erodes the credibility of governing bodies to set rules. And yeah. so you need to have a society of order. And if you have rules that nobody's following, it really sets like a bad well, tone for your governance. I think part of that is that nobody can tell Matt Damon what to do or will bother, but somebody will tell your fourth grader what to do. And so that's that's how that happens. Now, it's a little more complicated than that. I know. One second. <coughs> Non-COVID cough. Um, <laughs> you know, in California, uh, the teachers unions, uh, it appears their leadership. I don't want to say because they don't have the teachers all vote on these things. And I know the teachers in general are going to get blamed. But whoever the union leadership is, according to the reporting in Politico, um, it seemed like Gavin Newsom, the governor, wanted to open up in that way. And the unions uh, kind of scared him, and now he's sort of put it off. And so there are a lot of dynamics, but the overall result of one where the adults get to breathe freely and, and the kids don't, I, I just think that's something that's not really going to wash for much longer with and the broader I think public. That, um, there's going to be long-term second and third order effects of kids and being able to like read emotion on faces because... I tweeted this like a week ago or something. There was like a NBC reporter who said um, the CDC has said that kids wearing masks prevents the spread, but there's been no studies showing that wearing masks have any harm. And it's like, if you had told anybody like two years ago that um, we'd be saying that kids ability to read faces has no importance. They would have looked <laughs> at you like you had like 14 foreheads. It's you can tell that there is a thumb on the scale in those instances of no study has shown. That just means that this is absolute common sense. And the study we'd, we'd only have a study to demonstrate the extent to which there was an effect, right? Uh, of course, there's an effect, of course. And I think one of the tells, and I'm reminded of it in the entertainment industry, I'm reminded of it in watching all the advertisements, is that our movies, our TV shows, they don't have people wearing these things because they're obvious hindrances to communication. That is obvious. And we all understand how this thing started and um, when nobody knew anything. And, you know, we, we get all that. But I think it's fairly clear that it is 
it is a hindrance in life. And some people don't like it. You know, I get it. I have readers, I have listeners. They don't like when I harp on this issue, especially vis-a-vis my own child. I, I understand that. I do think it is an interesting one, Ryan, because... Uh, I'm sensitive po- to the concerns of the mass people. I disagree, though. Yeah. I'm sensitive to any of my customers, any of my listeners, and the customer is always right on an individual basis. But I I think that they are disproportionately more childless. And if I was childless and single, I just think it'd be so much less of a consideration, right? You just, you can kind of, oh, whatever, you know, maybe I got to wear a mask when I go to the grocery store. It's no big deal in my life. And it's such a different ballgame when you do have a kid. And the polling reflects that. I saw just brutal polling about a week ago come out that showed just the main cohort in all of this who says we need to move the hell on it's parents of school-aged children i mean that is that's that's the cohort that right now has the the democratic party completely scared uh is their shift on this particular issue and it is yeah people have been like showing up at school board meetings (laughs) like really getting like civically engaged in like the curriculum i'm not i'm laughing about it it's not funny but it's well it kind of is funny to just see uh small time politicians and city officials get blowtorched with that kind of emotional fervor they are they are funny like i i feel you it's bad, but it, they are funny. Um, I mean, it's it's a real thing. We'll return to the Super Bowl, but it's it's a real thing, man. You know, if you tell me that this is going to go on in perpetuity, I'm moving to Nevada. It's really that simple. I mean, it, it's it, I'm not kidding, and I don't think a lot of other people. I don't think I'm unusual in that. But you were going to, yeah. Think. You're you're lucky though that uh, I don't think I could be like we're moving, honey. We're moving to Nevada. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's an easier sell if it was in perpetuity, right? Uh, but yeah, I think there is a sense. I'm an optimist. I do think eventually, eventually freedom will win out. And I, that is anyway the hope. But speaking of breathing freely, uh, what did you make of your publication um, <laughs> getting dunked on by every blue check over a, a story about Snoop Dogg? smoking weed before his halftime uh his halftime show yeah so it was really weird because people were responding to the story as if it was like reefer madness tone and like speaking in um you know sacred oh no snoop dogg is smoking the devil's lettuce uh, <laughs> he's going to like rape your daughter and he's, so it wasn't he's... like that um <laughs> It, it was honestly, it was like presenting the fact of Snoop Dogg soaking weed before his halftime show as like, you know, it's it was no different than saying like, tonight is Tuesday. It wasn't yeah. like, this is Tuesday and it's terrible. It was so, <laughs> um, it just got quote tweeted like a million times by people who get mad about everything like Dave Zirin and LZ Granderson and you know, the usual. They, they want to be like, they, they want it to be footloose. God would a dated reference, but they, they want to be with the cool rebels against the stodgy Richard Nixon. Right. That's, that's what's motivating yeah. a lot. But of this. you know what it was, Ethan, is that many people, including, or especially professional journalists, do not click into the stories that they're commenting mm. on. So it can be like a waterfall where people just see other people's negative tweets about the New York Post Snoop Dogg smoking weed story. 
and just start like, oh man, the stupid New York Post. I hate the Murdochs. I hate my pot. I want to just be able to go to store and buy weed. Shut up. Yeah. <laughs> so like, <laughs> they um they just get like upset that other because other people were upset, but none of them ever bothered to like observe the actual content that they were commenting on. I'm looking at some of the reactions right now. George Hahn, who I guess does these TikToks, um, and there's actually a really interesting New York Times profile on him. He seemed like a lonely man, this TikTok performer who lives alone in New York and is mocking people for thinking the city is going to hell and people have watched too much Fox News and whatnot. And he's doing this performative weeping about it, uh, making fun of your publication. And it's uh, the, the, to the extent that people are doing performances on it without having read the story uh, is interesting uh, to me. But what's also interesting, I don't know. Here's a question. Uh, I'm just thinking about it. Is it at all notable that Snoop Dogg in front of 100 million people or so is smoking weed? Does well, that I mean why it's notable? Because people search for it. Like, yeah, the, yeah. The, um, the, the woman who wrote that story, uh, Jacqueline Hendricks, is consistently one of the top five most read writers at the whole New York Post. So she's like very in tune with what the audience wants. This isn't a story that I mean, anytime the, the, the uh, Daily Beast writes, line, it's a story <laughs> that the public is interested in. I can like I, I will that like they're. Joe Kinsey at Outkick, like another traffic monster. Like some of these people just know what like readers want. And so mm. um she she's like very sophisticated in her story selection. Uh the Daily Beast. New York Post dragged for narking on Snoop Dogg's weed smoking. Uh with a little subtitle of sad exclamation point. Uh the tabloid publication tried to shame the rapper for smoking weed. Prior to his Super Bowl halftime show performance, it backfired spectacularly. Did it? Did it really? I mean, it seems like it probably got some got some reads. I well, would yeah, think. I'm sure no one's ever going to read the post again. Like, <laughs> really, but, um, this is a fatal shot. I don't know how we'll ever recover as an outlet. <laughs> I think it's interesting. Well, the only thing, okay, so here's why it's slightly interesting. Because it might represent our turning of a corner on weed where at a, a wholesome halftime show that this could happen and we're not freaking out about it. Yeah. Well, it, it wouldn't be like, Oh yeah. Snoop Dogg was drinking a high life before his, uh, yeah. before his performance. It'll kind of get normalized like beer um, in the long run. Although You can't really know with Snoop because he's so sweet generous as a celebrity and part of the whole thing is that he smokes weed and it just seems like he plays by different rules than any other celebrity plays by he is an a-list celebrity whose lone hit album in my memory came out in the early 90s and nobody else is really saying like you know when's the next hit coming you know he just kind of no he's got a lot of hits maybe they aren't always on maybe he doesn't have like whole hit albums but he's been collaborative on like hits consistently since like really his peak i'm i'm not trying to under underrate the man i'm just making the point that he he, there's something about him that we like and we like having him around and he's cool and it really doesn't even matter what he does as far as making a movie or a new song. He's just this different you kind know, of celebrity. he's on like Peacock's um, Sunday Night Football post-game show this year. Fun fact. 
people like having him around and they don't care any kind of controversy he's in. It, it really doesn't matter. Yeah. He's smoking a, weed, whatever. I didn't, I, I didn't click the story and I'm commenting on it, but he got accused of like a sexual assault this week. I think I didn't read yeah. it. So yeah. It's, I want to it, go too deep into that. Uh, yeah. It, it seems like he's got a great cachet and smoking the weed as part of it. And, I don't know if it was somebody else who did it. It might be a slightly different reaction, but I think this country has moved a little bit on that issue. And it, it, they're just kind of, nobody cares about anything anymore after the pandemic. There's just nothing. There are no rules. Nobody is that offended by anything that happens. Um, but there was one more takeaway culturally, and we can move on to other issues and get out of the NFL eventually. But there was one thing, some people made the observation that are, are, are we stuck culturally? How, how did you feel, Ryan, seeing so many things pitched to people our age because we are the olds now, but also there's nothing new generated, it seems. Everything was a wink and a nod of the past of the Austin Powers. You know, we see this halftime show and you're seeing a 50 Cent looking I, not, you know, the same. I'm trying not to offend like, 50 Cent, but he's not maybe in his, his best that. shape. Um. Yeah, I gotta say, I really didn't pay any attention to the commercials because I was on a live writing shift and Mm. I had enough um, of an issue trying to like follow the game that the commercials were sacrificed in the name of producing page views. But I will say that the marketing of crypto makes me scared to death to get into it because it's all driven on like the fear of missing out and you know, it's like weird because it's supposed to be like currency or whatever, but you don't see a commercial being like, if you don't buy euros, everyone is going to be rich and you're going to be poor. And so like <laughs> the way that it's like being marketed is Classic very con man. uncomfortable to me and it makes me just want to stay out of it entirely. Yeah. The, the cryptification was another thing. That was the modern aspect. And by the way, anybody can ask questions. Uh, uh, other people, people, I've heard why they like crypto and it's fine. Like, I get it. There's lots of smart people who are in it and are convinced and they're true believers, but yeah. it's not for me. Uh, I wanted to fire off one more Super Bowl take, and we're going to do Ben Simmons at some point later. We might not. I mean, I, we're going to ask the people if they want it because I might write it. I don't know. I, okay. we might, we but might I, I have one more Super Bowl take. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the NFL relative to the NBA is at a huge advantage with college as a farm system. Uh, mm. Joe Burrow, second-year player, is an enormous star because he was a national championship winner at LSU maybe was like the best quarterback and college team ever. Um, Matthew Stafford like had not been like a winner in the league, but people like from the South know him as a Georgia quarterback. And so the, the college football um, ecosystem. Now some people slipped through the cracks and weren't enormous stars and then become in, in the NFL. I understand that, but the college creates these recognizable names ready to be marketed the second they enter the league. And while that's true with like a once in a generation name, like Zion Williamson, who by the way, has been like a huge disappointment with his health, but it's like very rare for him to come along and have the masses be as interested in someone like they were with him, at least to start with. And so football, that's just like another huge inherent advantage they have is that the players come in and they're men and they, the people know who their stars are. 
Yeah, and Burrow is played in front of uh, God. I don't know how big that audience was in the college football championship. Like Twenty-five or thirty million. Yeah, yeah. He's already played in front of an audience bigger than any NBA audience ever um, as a rookie. So you don't have to work so hard building up his reputation. The weird thing with the NBA too. Some of these guys out of college, it's almost like it didn't matter that they were stars. It seems like, you know, Anthony Davis at Kentucky, did that do anything for people being into him? It, it didn't seem like it did. Because he's there for like four months. Yeah. Yeah. That's, pro- that's part of it as well. That's, that's also part of it. Uh, Zion was different. Zion was a legit star. Uh, you could see him moving the needle, not just in the Duke games, but also in his early NBA games. And that's a tremendous disappointment to the league that he has not panned out thus far. So let's start taking some questions. We've got Yu Yang, the inimitable Yu Yang, making him next caller. Next All right. Caller. Thank you, thank, thank you hey. Ethan. Uh, sorry to call you like so many times, you know. We like value. Your value. Oh, oh ooh, wow. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, thank, I appreciate that. Um, we appreciate hey, uh, having regulars and you ask <laughs> questions. Go ahead. There you go. Oh, okay. Okay. Well, I, I don't know about that, but I'll, I'll take that. I'll take that. Um, I got a quick question. I was super fascinated by uh, Ryan. This is to Ryan, actually. But Ethan, you know, definitely I want to hear your take too. But Ryan, I saw your article about uh, Bob Knight and how like there was that like meeting uh-huh. that had, you know, how the, the last time Coach K spoke with Bob Knight was like in 2015. And that, I don't want to repeat the story so, so people can read it. Right. I love I love that article. No, go you- ahead. You can summarize it. You're doing a good job. Oh, the summary <laughs> is really the summary is really. People that, have like, to know I- the context of what you're asking about. Oh, true, go true, on. True, true, true. So essentially the context was that Coach K walked over to like uh, Bob, uh, Bob. Yeah, Bob Knight. And he even kind of kneeled down on, on kind of on the ground to be on eye level and just to say hello, just to, you know, be very cordial. Right. And then uh, uh, yeah. Bob now, which is a total dick and didn't ignore, just totally ignored him and didn't want to talk to him. And now uh, he has this like big beef of Coach K. Like he's held up all this kind of pent up kind of rage all these years. Right. And they don't want to talk. They don't want to talk to He doesn't want to talk to Coach K anymore. And this now, and now Coach K, yeah. says he doesn't want to talk to Bob Knight. This is my question. Right. I've heard like a million stories about what an asshole Bob Knight is. Have you, based on your research and your kind of reporting, have you heard people like stick up a Bob Knight and go, you know what? He's actually not a bad guy. He's okay. I like him. Yeah, and like Dan Dockage yeah. would. Like players, I bet you, I don't know what Isaiah Thomas has said, but I would bet you Isaiah Thomas would stick up for him. Um, right. you, you know, so what you're describing, the incident, basically, um, it's a book by Ian O'Connor, who's one of my colleagues, and he wrote this like really extensive biography of Coach K. And so Coach K came up as like in the Bob Knight tree and was like that eventually passed him. And I think this is kind of an mm. archetype you see when the mentee passes the mentor. Mm. Um, so right. if you can like imagine Shams definitively passing Woj, it's kind of like <laughs> that with Coach K and Bob Knight. Uh, well, it didn't even have to happen really for those two to break up, but yeah. Right. So, but it, so the, um, it, it's been like a series of, you know, they always, each one wants to prove he's actually better than the other because, when you are as insanely competitive as they are, it's just what drives you all the time is having to defeat the people that you see as your rivals and to make it indisputable. 
and so Bob Knight offered to like do scouting for one of Coach K's Olympic teams, and right. Coach K just uh, ignored it, I guess, as the story goes. Uh, uh, and so then, like Bob Knight held a grudge about that for years, and then when Coach K came over to talk to him at some point, Bob Knight just like acted as though he wasn't there. It wasn't like right. he was confrontational or anything. He right. just like pretended that Coach K was not even there. And so so um, you know, Shakespearean drama. But I would <laughs> say that there are def- there are defenders of Bob Knight. You just have to kind of know where to seek them out. Yeah, I've I've read defenses of him. This makes me want to read a season on the brink about the 1985-86 uh, Indiana season, which was a very influential book. I have yet to read it. I need to check it out after this. But it's going to be one of those things, though, that has so much information that you you do like five pages. You feel it'll take you like forty five minutes, or at least some of those <laughs> books with me do. It'll be like in the Iliad where they're lifting all the different armies, and yeah, it could it could happen. I, I don't know, but Yu Yang, that's a great question. I want to take one. Take one from Scott. Make Scott the next caller. Anybody else, feel free to drop on in there. Scott, how you doing? Hey, doing well. Thanks, guys. Um, hey. I was going to go, I had like a more broad sports access journalism question kind of going off on the Woj angle, but mm. wanted to pivot and go uh, Leah Thomas. Um, mm. So I guess, especially with Ryan on and uh, sports ratings, et cetera, what do you think, given, or well, not given, but just as background, the you know Olympic ratings are pretty in the tank this year. Um, what do you think if a person like Leah Thomas, like she's obviously not good enough to get into the Olympics, but it sounds like the IOC is like making headway into potentially allowing more access possibly to trans athletes. You know, who knows what's going to happen with that, but let's say in the hypothetical, if a trans athlete competed in the Olympics in this kind of situation, what kind of impact do you think it would have on media coverage have to be covered more. And then also from the TV ratings. I think it would probably in the short run drive high TV ratings. But if you have like Leah Thomas is dominating all the time consistently, I think that that would create so much outcry of the unfairness. And then eventually it would be very boring. Yeah, I think the novelty would be short, short-lived, but there would be novelty. It's impossible to predict what that would be for viewership. I know we discussed it on a previous call, and I was thinking again about writing about it because there is something interesting. They should put the Leah Thomas finals on, like, NBC or something. I mean, they should put something because nobody's watching this. What a massive loss for NBC when they've poured so many resources into the Olympics rights to get this as an indicator because they've got them for a while, Ryan. You might know them off the top of your head, but if this is where it's going, this is a, a squandering of billions and billions of dollars for them because it seems like, you know, at least in this country, a lot of people are kind of checking out of the whole the whole Olympics thing. There's not as much patriotic fervor as there was in 1984. So anyway, uh, Scott, good question. We've got other people in the queue. I want to maybe bump Chase up to the line because he's actually involved in this app. And seeing him in the queue makes me very interested as to what he might what he might say. So we're going to take Chase. If you guys would forgive, forgive us for it. 
you know, a non-normie, a non-normie caller. Chase, hey, how guys. you doing? Um, I'm driving, but I, I mean, I, I just have been kind of fascinated with the Eileen Goose story. I don't mm. know how, how entrenched you are, but Ethan, you're probably one of the best people to talk because it feels like this story in a very authentic way touches on a lot of like soft power dynamics between China and the U S and maybe it somewhat touches on the soft ratings decline, at least like in the U S with the Olympics. Mm -hmm. And you have this mega star would be mega star going and basically choosing to compete for China. And, um, and Laura Wagner wrote a good piece of defector. I don't, always love her stuff but this was actually a, a very good piece just sort of detailing like her story and like where she comes from and like the fact that the chinese are making this exception to let her compete i, I yeah. don't know if you guys either of you had any thoughts but it feels like she's emblematic of a lot of things yeah um, this would not happen in the past it, this, this is a new thing and i don't know all the dynamics some of my readers have been kind of nudging me to look into it and saying there's something weird here there's something off here um you know is she getting paid what's going on but it does it is strange she would be a massive star uh to americans i mean uh she is very good looking i feel awkward saying that like you're not supposed to notice such things these days but you know girl next door good looking superstar well, she's a legitimate uh, model she's like yeah gets paid yeah. And so this is this is the stuff of stardom. And, you know, there's like a buoyancy. It's it's strange that she's so controversial because her manner is so uncontroversial. And yeah, there's something there. There's something odd. I feel as though I was thinking about writing it, but there's something to people don't like the China influence over these Olympics, but they also just aren't as invested in the United States. Um, you could look at various polling, uh, various surveys. This is a very low point for patriotism in our country right now. Um, and is I think there that a hot is, point for patriotism anywhere? Uh, that's a good question. That's a very good question. Is there any country right now that's pounding their chest and they're saying that, wow, we've, we've, we're really killing it. I mean, I can tell you this. I'm looking right now at Real Clear Politics, the, uh, the right direction and wrong track uh, <laughs> tracker right now on Real Clear Politics. It is 65.1% wrong track, 27.6% right direction. So that's where we are at right now as a country. We are not burgeoning with optimism currently. And it's been a massive drop, by the way, um, in those metrics since summer, uh, I think summer of last year, where it seemed like uh, the shackles were coming off. And so people are down in the dumps, man. They're down in the dumps. And I think it's hard to garner a huge Olympic audience when people are down in the dumps. I um I I don't have any opinion on the um Eileen Goose story. I haven't really I'm either like go like all in on something or I just it just passes me by and this is one I just haven't done any research in. Yeah, I haven't done the requisite research. I think it would be good to look into it, but it seems as though it's so abstract to me, you know. The thing with the Olympics is I'm so unconnected to it other than basketball. Um, and it's almost an inverse correlation as far as interest in the Winter Olympics and being a sports fan, which is another curious 
curious thing about the whole deal. So, True. yeah, my wife never, ever, ever watches sports by choice, but watches the Olympics all the time. It's completely just it doesn't it's it's a paradox. I, I will never not be confused by that dynamic, but it is there. I will look into goo. I will see if there's something there. Good question, Chase. Let's take a question from Wynn. Great name. You're going to be on soon. Ethan, yeah, thanks for having me on, Ryan. Good to hear you. I'm a fellow Hi. Berkeley alum, Ethan, so hopefully oh, hey. the regime hopefully the regime is coming down. The mask regime is coming down for you <laughs> and your Bears. kid. Yeah, go Bears. <laughs> um, okay, so I, I, you know, a little bit of a transition, but I want to ask you about this Harden-Simmons situation. Okay. I've been seeing all these hit pieces coming out on Harden today that, like, you know, he didn't – he wanted to. He didn't want to play in a D'Antoni type of offense. He's wanted to slow down all the team. Like, I mean, what what are what are your thoughts on on this sort of situation? And do you think Ben Simmons is going to get this money that he, I guess, you know, he didn't get because of his mental health issues for the not for if the, first the league half of the is year? smart. They, the league needs to make an example out of him. This is potentially existential for them. They can't have people doing this all the time. It's a really bad look. They know that one of my criticisms of Adam Silver on this is that he believes that, but he doesn't want to be out in front saying it. So he makes Daryl Morey and the Sixers be the tough guy. Uh, David Stern would be in front of a microphone saying, if you're getting paid $100 million, maybe you got to show up to work or maybe you can play in Australia. How about that? Like, that's what would be happening. And frankly, that's what would need to happen. So they should, I, I don't know. There, there's legal involved. There's what is Adam Silver has the stomach for. The intriguing thing is that the media has now turned on a dime and gone from tacitly disbelieving Ben Simmons on the mental health excuse to now really shouting at anybody who has any doubts, which has been quite strange to witness. Um, so I'm not sure how that's all going to play out. Now, the hardened thing you mentioned, I think the harshness of some of the assessments of him, those might be correct, but they seem connected to how he doesn't have an agent and made me think maybe one of the main reasons these days why you have an agent if you're a big star and presumably don't need one to get all your money is just to prevent this kind of PR because so many reporters are just PR for their sources and are just rewarding the agents who feed them the news and maybe that's one of the main advantages so that's a stray thought of mine but Ryan I I have a hard take yeah Um, and uh, it doesn't have to anything to do with people's perception of him, but the way that he negotiated his deals um, by not signing these max long terms in Houston and then Brooklyn that were available to him and would have guaranteed him, you know, generational money for four or five years at a time, he. Um, turned those down in order to have the flexibility to force his way to the exact situation he wants to be in. And whether that pans out for him or not remains to be seen. And it's going to be largely out of his control because no one can tell you whether or not Joel Embiid's legs are going to work. The love between him and Maury is kind of an interesting thing, but yeah. But he, um... You know, he bet on himself that he can keep getting the max money one year at a time. And that gave him the leverage to force his way out of Houston and then force his way out of Brooklyn. Yeah, I mean, that's sort of like a LeBron move, right? Just get, you know, you yeah. continually hold the, the, the club under the barrel. 
Um, well, because- well, and it's the LeBron move that works for LeBron, but it hasn't worked for the league. And that's, that's been a tricky thing to deal with. I think it's okay to a degree of LeBron, you know, screws over Cleveland or burns up Cleveland to do the decision. And he's now the bad guy and it's interesting and he's in Miami and that's all cool. But if everybody starts taking this approach of being a man without a country and one year, one year, one year, then what happens is what has happened, which is that fans go, well, I don't care about you don't care about me. So I don't care about you. You're not invested in me. So I'm not invested in you. That's what happens. And it's also I think part of why it's kind of absurd to see all these people at major publications at ESPN and Sports Illustrated lecturing fans on how they need to respect Ben Simmons' mental health. Look, Ben Simmons might have a mental health issue, but he doesn't give a shit about these people. He doesn't give a shit about these fans. Why should they really give a shit about him? It's There's reciprocity in life is what I'm saying. Yeah, um, and the Sixers fans did support him for a long time. And I think Philly fans get a bad rap. Like Kevin Kinkhead, I think I'm pronouncing his name right. He writes for Crossing Broad, which is a Philadelphia sports blog. And, you know, we miss the blogosphere for stories like these. The blogosphere hasn't really Mm. been covered in any one place, but it has died since 2015 by and large. There are like some remnants left, but um, it used to be this very vibrant, creative like spread out scene that has, does not add many survivors, but um, they wrote, he wrote that, um, you know, Eagles fans were wholly supportive of Lane Johnson um, taking three games off for his mental health. Uh, that the reason that he listed the reasons why one wouldn't believe um, that Ben Simmons really um, was experiencing this and kind of concluded he's just a guy who hates his job. We've all been there. <laughs> uh, he's on that that Reddit, uh, that work-hating Reddit that's exploded and has been referenced in news. It's, like, it's like he doesn't like everything, every little thing, you know, the drill, the, um, the, the woman... Uh, giving like the hold speech, the everything like in the office drove made his skin crawl, and that was like a situation that Simmons probably found himself in. But yeah. so I don't know. The, the, it did conclude the only person who knows what Ben Simmons is going through is Ben Simmons. But here's the question: If we accept that there are like bad actors in the world, and any of your real or perceived enemies could wield bad faith feigning faking yes. of an affliction to just um bend the universe to his or her will do we want to live in a world where that's a weapon available to to a bad yeah actor? the way they, they they hide within the tab like they hide, hide within the taboos of the era and they they hide within the taboo of attacking anybody who has a certain sort of condition or issue um, I'm saying they broadly that there's this lack of admission that sociopaths exist. I'm not calling Ben Simmons a sociopath, but there isn't an admission that if you have these taboos, if you have these dynamics set up where somebody will get a lot of sympathy or get a lot of leeway, then that or, will be or force his way to a team that he wants to be on despite being on a four or five year contract. Yeah, we're not admitting that the incentives exist. Like the incentives exist. The incentives to bullshit here 
exist. It doesn't mean he's bullshitting, but the incentives exist. And, and can, I don't like, you know, the, the idea of shaming people who think that he's faking it. I, uh, he, he doesn't seem to be like too wrapped up. I watched a little bit of his press conference and to the extent that like anybody who thinks he's faking it is exacerbating it. That was not the sense that I got. I don't, I didn't get the sense that he cares like one iota about whether people think he's real or sincere. Whatever he's going through, um, the veracity, who knows people are allowed to be pissed off at you for not showing up to do a job that you're well compensated to do. They're allowed to feel that way. That is something they are allowed you know, to feel. Yeah, imagine you pay like twenty five grand a year for season tickets. Yeah, and yeah. they're not. There, there's no empathy for the the paying customers. No, uh, um, in the NBA, this like, is again like who, so much of, yeah. Like I think they're entitled to a better night in night out product in the regular season for what they're spending than what they're receiving over the last several years. Yeah. And it seems as though that obvious pro fan position is not taken up by very many people with platforms and media who somehow, for some reason, see it as their job to talk people out of their most uh, basic, obvious reactions to something. Um, I'm sure I've done it. I'm sure I did it when I was in my 20s. I, you know, especially when it came to people being mad at LeBron for leaving Cleveland, but it just doesn't, it seems like we've got too much of that going. And this is going to be a thing. This is not going away, by the way. This is not just going to be a Ben Simmons thing. This is a Gen Z thing. You know, I don't think I'm going on too far out a limb when I say that, that this is, this is generational. I, my heart goes out to Gen Z and the younger generations. I think it has a lot to do with growing up in a world that's highly mediated through social media technology. But you see it with uh, Naomi Osaka. Uh, you could say that you see it to a certain extent with Kyrie. Um, yeah, I feel Simone like Biles. You see it with Simone Biles. I think this is going to be a feature of our culture for some time going forward. So this is not the last of this kind of conversation. But let's take a let's take a question from Yasarian. He's been waiting waiting patiently over here. Yasarian, Yasarian. Hey guys. Hey. Uh so just to drag it back to the um, the coach Coach K drama because I'm more of a, a college guy than a a pro guy. I'm. Uh, basically uh, I'm very LA in my pro basketball fandom in that I'm a Lakers fan when the Lakers are good. And when they're not good, I ignore them Mm. and I don't care for LeBron James. So I've been ignoring the Lakers for a few years now. Well, Um, you're going to get your way because this is the end of his time there. Ooh, that's a dick. But anyway, coach. Well, according, according to no less an authority than Jeannie Buss, he's one of the most important Lakers of all time. Right. (laughs) Uh, yeah, but, you know, the fact – I think it was, like, Ramona Shelburne talking with Brian Winhorst or somebody who said um, LeBron and AD wanted them to get trade Westbrook and bring in someone else, and Jeannie and Polinka were saying that, um, no, you wanted this team. You live with it. We're not, we're not reshuffling the deck or, like, mortgaging our future over this, like – and then Polinka also said that he consulted with them before the deadline, and then they said through Dave McMenamin 
that he did not. And so you just see that LeBron, as I've said before, is like a slash and burner. And this is the end of his cycle with the Lakers. It's pretty obvious. I, uh, I, I feel like Cowherd should have, he, he should uh, take some of the Rodgers takes and apply them to LeBron. He's not a baller. He's a bailer. He's going <laughs> to bail. It's already <laughs> happening. Okay. You, you <laughs> that was very well, good. <laughs> it's all very painful. You know, I, I'm a UCLA guy, so obviously I have a soft spot in my heart for Russell Westbrook. And uh, again, I'm not following the team very closely, but from what I hear, it's 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 not, he's not covering himself in glory this season, which is hard to see. But so as, as a UCLA fan of many years, uh, I am, you know, sort of constitutionally obligated to hate both Bob Knight and uh, Mike Krzyzewski. So this... Uh, all this news, you know, fills my heart with, uh, with schadenfreude. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, it's never, you know, UCLA has been trying to replace John Wooden for 50, almost literally 50, 50 years mm. um, with little success to show for it. So I'm just curious to get your guys' take on, oh, and the other reason that I'm obligated to hate Bob Knight is that he, in some in some ways, is responsible for Steve Alford, who I refuse to acknowledge was ever used to his <laughs> note. Um, but setting that aside, just curious to, to get your guys, if you have any thoughts on how Shire will do, what are the odds that he can do any good with that program? Hmm. Brian, do you have any thoughts on that? Uh, he's going to have a lot of help from Nike, I expect. I think that Nike will be very invested in keeping Duke a powerhouse. And in the age of NIL, that'll be useful for them. So they're going to have good players. And then how the hell should anybody know whether he's going to X's and O's and motivate them up? I don't know what it says about me. I'm not very tribalist in this way, but my first thought was, ah, Jewish guy, Jewish player. That was my first thought. (laughs) Um, You know, I like that he's 34. It seems like coaching is very demanding and uh, ever more so in the modern era. And at least in the NFL, these young coaches are really crushing it. So maybe... Maybe that's a good move to go with a guy that young as the successor. So I obviously don't know anything. These are my scattershot takes. I don't follow it. He's starting with like the number one recruiting class. So Mm. he's going to have wind in his sails Um, from there, you know, up to if he's any like good at the other parts of the job. So, yeah, that, you know, maybe maybe I get into college basketball. Maybe that's something now that I do. You know, have I talked about it? I think I have talked about on here how the crowds in college basketball, top to bottom, are just slaughtering the NBAs, which, like, still don't feel like they've emerged out of, like, the catacombs of the pandemic. Yeah, I haven't checked out really any college basketball this year. So I'm going to see that and and see about it because I'm curious because it's counterintuitive because – Campus life has been so uh, restricted relative to other aspects of life. You hear about all these crazy rules that people are under, so I would assume that the games would be quite muted, but you're telling me that it's it's the opposite, that it's where they, they blow off their steam, you know? Maybe analogous to how the very sober crowd in Salt Lake City is the loudest one in the NBA. Yeah, it... Um... The the crowds that are lit are like Salt Lake City, Memphis, Cleveland, 
even I think Milwaukee we have the defending champs, but um it just even for that like Warriors Lakers game Saturday night ABC Super Bowl weekend, it was a pretty good crowd, but I didn't feel like the roof was blown off, you know? Mm. Well, I'll, I will check that out. Thank you, Yesterian. Let's take a question from Neely over here. And eventually, it's it's past Ryan's bedtime. Eventually, we got to get him. Ne- get him Neely is a high school classmate of mine. Oh, I had no idea. Neely, Neely, you're on Neely. Neely's got five seconds. Five seconds. Oh, sorry I, had, sorry. I had to unmute. How's it going, <laughs> it's all y'all? good, man. Hi. <laughs> yeah, I haven't talked to Ryan in like 15 years. Wow. Um, Neely <laughs> beat me in a debate where I thought Carmelo was going to be a better NBA player than LeBron. <laughs> that is a deep cut. I can't remember. That is, and they're both still in the league. <laughs> I can't believe you. you right, what's your that. question? I can't believe you remembered that. I actually, I was actually calling, I was thinking about Windy versus Woj because I was thinking mm. about the what last week in sports and that was kind of cracking me up thinking about that. But then. This last guy was talking about LeBron. You guys were kind of talking about LeBron, and it made me think about. I actually remember Ethan. The first time I ever read your name was when you wrote that story about Nike. If that was a good move for them to do the lifetime deal, like the billion dollar deal with LeBron, mm. remember that? I, I I think like that was the like the piece that like put you on the map. Oh, you're talking about the the Steph Curry. Uh, well, yeah, the 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 piece about Nike fucking up the Steph Curry pitch, and it was it was putting forth something. The, the sticky part of the article that I didn't know would be sticky was this this sense of is the real employer of the superstar the sneaker company and not the team? You know that that was something that I guess stuck out to people, and that was part of it. But is that what you're referencing? Well, I no, I was actually there was like there was like a day when you like sort of caused the Nike stock to like dip because I you think it you was said that, okay. So, so that was the that article, the LeBron, <laughs> the LeBron lifetime deal, and I'm and I'm just curious. I actually don't know. I forget if that was like 2015 or 16, but it would be cool to do like a retrospective on that. You know, like like Pitchfork, <laughs> Pitchfork just recently like did re-reviews of like old albums from like 2005. You should like do a re like a retrospective of that article because I, I actually don't know if that lifetime deal for LeBron was a good move or not. I actually don't. We like, don't, we it, haven't it, heard about his shoe sales being gangbusters. Yeah, I, I think the broader story there is that the sneaker game has kind of uh, died. And I don't know why we could look into it, but LeBron has not been the sneaker salesman. Obviously, that Michael Jordan was or is. Michael Jordan still outsells everybody else. And that was a brief moment yeah. in time where it looked like Steph could become something for Under Armour that was massive and it didn't totally work out that way. And under armor, their stock tanked and, uh, you know, an odd correlation with, uh, Kevin Durant coming to the Bay area. So it would be an interesting look back because under armor had the wind at its back. Steph had the wind at its back at his back. And that article hit at a particular time. And it was a big article for me. It really helped. I think it's what allowed me to get a book deal. Uh, it's a one thing led to another type of situation. So I was just very fortunate. I got some good sources. I got some good tips. I, you know, industry secret. I might have bluffed my way into some information that happens sometimes when you're reporting. If you, act like, if you act like you know everything already, 
then the person you're talking to uh, will just feel like an idiot uh, lying to you. So they, they tend to sometimes open up a bit. So there that worked in my favor. Be, like um, impervious to it too, though. There are, especially agents. But the guy who was really helpful on that Steph story was uh, Del Curry because parents of parents of NBA players, parents of players, they just don't care. They'll say they'll, they'll <laughs> give their opinion. They'll tell you about what happened. So Dell was was very helpful to me. Um, uh, I'll branch off funny. your point about the sneaker companies employing the players. Mm. Um, you, you've touched on this briefly in a story, but I think that what. Um, people don't realize the general public about sports media the most is how um, consolidated the agencies for the sports media talents are. That's the Uh, new thing that I'm red pilling people on. That's the new thing. And I should have hit it harder in the Woj, uh, the Woj thing I wrote last week. It's amazing. I think that um, like, I think CAA might've really originated this game, but WME and UTA are right in it with them doing the exact same thing. Yeah. And uh, Montag Group, which um, recently sold to Wasserman, I think mm-hmm. that conglomerate can be included in the conversation as well, if not on like the same level Dude. as those other three. Yeah, I have reporters who sometimes reach out to me and say, hey, Montag just approached me. What do I do? You know, they're recruiting them. They're recruiting them for favorable coverage for their clients. And this is all happening underneath the surface of the industry. But, uh, Neely, good question. Let's take one last one from JF. It might be on the topic we were just discussing. And then, again, Ryan, he's on the different time zone. We got to get him off the bed, as great as this talk (laughs) is. Let's take a question from old JF up there in Canada. Yeah, Yeah, what's up, guys? Uh, And I, uh, I want to... You know, mentioned Ryan's point about crypto too. Uh, you're absolutely right. It's uh, the sole source of value of crypto is convincing other people uh, its value. It's a total pyramid scheme. Every single argument that I've had with somebody, my crypto bro friends, uh, has all failed miserably since, I don't know, 2012, 2013. Mm. Um, it's all these arguments have uh, fallen. And it's just very bizarre that companies. Well, people industry- made a lot of money in it. And- there's nothing worse than watching someone make a lot of money for nothing. Like it just drives you absolutely insane. And you have to really fight that in investing all the time because you don't want to be the one eventually caught holding the bag. Exactly. And the major argument they would make is that this is, oh, this protects against inflation. But as soon as inflation numbers were released, you know, the price tanked. And I'm just like, well, you know, explain this, right? Yeah. People had to sell it to pay taxes on the gains they made from it, or they had to like, paid out a credit card bill or so i don't know there's lots of reasons My, oh, but i'm no financial right. expert go up with inflation i'm no financial expert but i've noticed that when the stock market is booming i've seen crypto boom and i just think that's a function of people have more money to play around with and so it helps the crypto and this idea that crypto is going to be the life raft when it all goes to shit i i just haven't seen much evidence of that recently there's there's been zero evidence, and the 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 problem uh, 
particularly with uh, certain tokens, is that they're always getting replaced by newer and better technology, right? The blockchain is improving. So, you know, blockchain uh, 1.0 is Bitcoin, and people are still, you know, pitching that, you know, uh, selling that hard. But, you know, it's, it's just getting lapped in technology, right? And, uh, and they're selling the kind of virtues of cryptocurrency, you know, on the oldest technology they have for crypto uh, technology, which is just, uh, you know, very deceitful and uh, scummy with so many pumpers. But yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's a racket. It's a pyramid scheme. And, but I just want to make one comment on the Leah Thomas thing, too. Uh, I think it's such a traffic driver because there's no one more zealous than the, you know, sports parent, right? Like, mm. you know, the, probably the most furious people are the uh, the parents that are have daughters competing against her, right, in these competitions. Like, they're probably going wild. Uh, and I'm sure every other sports dad who has a, uh, a daughter or son in competitive sports probably, you know, reads this and just like, you know, well, Outrage. no one's putting their name on it because they don't want to get smeared as a big well, And no <laughs> one's just saying some obvious stuff yes. about it, too, that you're not a crazy person or a bigot. If you've got concerns about, I don't know, your daughter going up uh, for a corner kick against a biological male who's six foot five. I mean, that's something that that's a normal thing that is normal. And it's, you know, I think people fear the rabid backlash. I, I certainly got some crazy people after I wrote the thing I wrote. But what's cool about what I do is that there's really nobody to pressure. Um, I'm not trying to encourage them to get creative about it, but it's a different situation than if I was at a, a publication because then there's a pressure point there. And it's it's something that, you know, you just need to be positioned right now uniquely, it seems, in order to talk honestly about something that is growing in salience. Absolutely. And I think there's a lot of uh, attention to this and a lot of demand for it. And people are being, you know, quietly reading your articles, Ryan, on this or Ethan, uh, because they have that kind of investment within their own children. And I now guys this to, um, you know, what's happening here in Canada with this trucker convoy, uh, you know, probably three weeks ago, four weeks ago, you never had these conversations about Are these bank mandates. accounts really going to get frozen? Is, is he going to do that? Yeah, well, wait a second. Maybe you need to turn a quarter on crypto now. Maybe this is the solution up there. I don't know. But yeah. Exactly. You're going to freeze the crypto wallets too. These people think that governments can't do that. But they. But that's exactly it. This is the whole you know part of the scam with crypto too is it's not a currency, right? You can't buy things with it. It's just very slow. It's impractical. Mm. And you, in order to get cash, you have to go through a broker to get it. So they're basically saying, we're not allowing you, if you take that whatever million or million and a half of Bitcoin that you have uh, and try to convert it, we'll stop them. Like, you know, and we keep hearing about like wallets getting stolen. And so I don't know. Yeah. Debanking freaks me out. Laughing all the way to the bank at me. But yeah. Yeah. Debanking freaks me out as a concept. The idea of it's. Because I don't think I'm that controversial, but it doesn't take a lot of imagination and not not even that I'm viewing it that way, that it's just about me. Right. But it doesn't take a lot of imagination to envision some sort of encroachment where a lot of people just get debanked if they say something that's against whatever the government or regime says. And everybody else just kind of shrugs and, and takes it. And this is just, you know, you get the little smug lecture that this isn't the First Amendment or whatever from people. And I mean, I could envision that world. That's not hard for me to envision.
Absolutely. And, you know, he invoked those emergencies act, uh, which, you know, could do that for, you know, wherever the 50,000 people that donate to these campaigns supporting the truckers. And I think this really turned the tide on public sentiment about dropping these uh, restrictions. I think, you know, a month ago before this happened, people, you know, maybe quietly didn't want any of these things like masking and, you know, lockdowns. Mm. But, you know, the, it started a conversation and more and more people became supportive with the ethos of the movement. Like, they're just like, screw this. And, uh, of course, Trudeau, as you see, he's doubling, tripling down. And uh, but just there's a massive public backlash. Uh, yeah, the and- other thing is, it's like, I, you know, when you give these powers to the government, you have to account for, like, what if there's a Canada Trump? who gets elected. And so what if your like political enemy has the power to just freeze bank accounts? It's very scary. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, that's being thrown back at him because, you know, he had this very, you know, uh, staged and dramatic pause when he was asked about the Trump handling of the BLM uh, riots. Mm. And uh, he paused for like 20 seconds at this. It was very, it was incredibly staged, but, um, you know, he was very, uh, he grabbed the mile, the moral high ground over that, those kind of incidents. And he put out a lot of tweets. So there's, you know, tons to hang him up from like defiant L's if, if that wasn't suspended uh, on all the tweets that he made about BLM and he's being supportive of free speech and all this. Uh, but uh, you know, like you said, it could happen. It could have been Trump. The media would have been crazy if they did it. I think actually he he was condemned uh, mostly uh, across the country by every premier, which, are, which is our governor, head of uh, provinces. And most uh, news and media stations also uh, kind of said this was unwarranted. The only one that I noticed, I flipped on CBC, which is the uh, state funded broadcaster, and, you know, it was just like the craziest commentary ever heard because they said he should have done this earlier because five premiers have caved to these truckers on these regulations. Well, OK, so I don't again, I don't claim to know everything about the intricacies of the situation in Canada. But I'm wondering, is is he in this difficult place because it would be logical to relax and rescind a lot of the restrictions at this point? And it is happening in other countries but it will be a massive loss of face if he if he does it. Is that the situation he might be stuck in, or is that an incorrect read? No. So you're absolutely right, and that I think that's the spectrum uh, between you know my friends that we had this conversation that his ego is probably too fragile to uh, give up at this point, right? But the reality is there's been five or six now six premiers uh, who have dropped these vax mandates and vax passports. Uh, so, uh, you know, they weren't, you know, uh, I guess above, you know, trying to wait out these truckers, they realized, well, you know, we're the ones we're blowing and, uh, they've adjusted. Mm. Well, Hey, we learn something every time, uh, especially about Canada when we have JF on, uh, I want to thank everybody for a great show yet again. Um, impressive the listenership. A lot of it happens after we post. We enjoy the live feedback and that helps as well. Ryan, loving industry talk. Great job as always. Congrats on the prediction. Is there anything you'd like to plug in the outro? No, I just want to get on my soapbox about NBC News because it's made me oh. so 
Okay, so this is like uh, around the horn where you get it's your, it's the sports yeah. it's the sports reporters like final <laughs> like FaceTime, mm. yeah. Yeah, look right in the camera. Right in the camera. Let's hear it. Okay. You know, a lot of people don't realize the influence that NBC News has on our lives, Ethan. <laughs> I, I can't do the whole thing. I'm sorry. If I had prepared, maybe, but I can't do it. On I can't improvise it. Um, <laughs> I'm going to try. It'll be cringe. Um, the, so the, the, um, I saw a tweet from Joe Flint of the Wall Street Journal that Today's show got beaten by Good Morning America during Olympic week for the first time in 30 years. This is like six months after another tweet from Joe Flynn that um, today's show had averaged under 3 million viewers for the week for the first time since anybody can remember. And uh, even getting like a Super Bowl ratings prediction right, nothing makes me happier <laughs> than when a show that I think is like awful is just getting plummeting <laughs> in the ratings. And like today's show is so bad. Like I think Savannah Guthrie on it is like Get Up era Michelle Beadle. Like I'm not saying that Beadle can't succeed again and that she's always terrible. But it's just, on that show, she didn't look like she wanted to be there. And that's how it seems with Guthrie on the Today Show. And so there's that dynamic, plus that they just like parrot DNC orthodoxies um, for every topic. It's just like they're it's, like their stories uh, is written by like Jen Psaki. I don't want to interrupt you on it, but yeah, it's odd how partisan NBC specifically is. And I don't understand how it came to be, but by reputation, people would say, oh, New York Times. But there's more balance at New York Times when it comes to New York Times has like has columnists arguing against mask mandates for kids like there are like crazy things in New York Times. Chris, NBC, like, don't get like, me wrong, but they I, have I noticed, like, a sane um, component too. Yeah, I noticed because I was going to talk about. I think I wrote about Aaron Rodgers um, a few months ago, and I was thinking was the bunch of media outlets that said that he took horse dewormer and phrased it like that, and it really wasn't. It was just NBC, and I started to notice the pattern after that that they had the most overt propaganda, the most uh, just right, and so they're getting pu- they're getting clubbed by the public over it. Like these, uh, granted, they just had this enormous Super Bowl success, and we gave them their flowers for that at the beginning of the show, and but. Their news division is just so brutal. And a lot of people like all over the country watch their local news and they infuses into that too. Mm. And so it's, um, I don't think that they get the discredit that they deserve. I think I, I agree with that. And at least with MSNBC, there's, it's upfront. It's the lefty analog to Fox news, but a lot of the other NBC products that don't have the M and the S in front of it, I think, have turned in this particular way. And I would completely agree that it is a substandard product. It does not have 
the cultural valence of it. And maybe that's to the discredit of conservatives who don't differentiate and just think all the media is like that. Um, but yes, I would agree. It's a, another excellent take from one Ryan Glass Beagle. Now, now we can go. That was my parting shot. I had to <laughs> I get wish, that. I, I wish I had a party <laughs> shot. I want. I could talk more about my article on Woj. Uh, you know the whole Woj Brian Widhorse thing, but you know I'll leave, I'll let that sleeping dog lie. I think it's uh, I think it's good maybe that I just talk about a woes situation every few months. I could do it every week. I don't want to do it every week. Uh, it seems like maybe it would be good for the numbers, but, but I don't know. Um, I, I think, okay. One parting shot is that this is something we need when the reporter who is represented by an agency is reporting on a player or a GM who is also represented by the same agency that should be disclosed. I mean, this is crazy. This is insane that they don't disclose that. They are yeah, on the same UTA team. does that too. UT, like you, you, the, it's not just like CAA that does that. WMA, no, no, I didn't. And I didn't do it just, too. I'm saying this should be broad based and I, I'm not saying. I don't just think you. it ever will be. I think someone would have to anoint themselves, the announcer of all the conflicts of interest and just <laughs> um, hammer it in every time. That it happens. It's not going hmm. to happen on um, voluntarily because hmm. um, the networks aren't interested in um, in in disclosing it. It's like you can't blame the reporters for. Um, it's the same thing I've said when with like the gambling apps and um, and, and like how of course they're going to limit you and of course they're not going to. Yeah, uh, attack. But there needs the to be pressure. Has to, has to oversee it, but the government is partners with them. That's the networks here. The networks um, feel like they benefit from that transactional relationship as well, and so it's only going to happen if they enforce it and they don't want to. So the only way you can get what you want is if you, if I'm the one who does this, the ombudsman appointing it. <laughs> And out all the time, every time, but it has to be with everybody. It has to be with CA. And then then I'm exposed in a way because maybe I signed some documents that said I can't criticize one institution in particular. So yeah, it's a bit tricky right there. That's a bit of a, that's a bit of a conundrum. And that's why I'm just saying in, in a more journalistically ethical world, that's something that they would do. I found what happened last week. Crazy. I tried to, frame it a little bit dispassionately in my article. I don't know what you thought about my article. Um, I don't know if we've really discussed it, but to see Woj on TV (laughs) after saying this trade wasn't going to happen, the parties weren't talking, then spin a yarn the next day saying that actually they just started talking today when everybody knows the real story. It's gotten kind of crazy. It's gotten I, insane. I, I feel like he believes what he was saying, though. I don't think that he was like... I don't think that he felt he was lying. I would encourage... Did you watch the video clip of him doing... Of him talking? Yeah, I, I saw... I was following it. I don't think that he was lying, though. I don't. I've seen more enthusiastic performances and hostage videos i i don't know i mean maybe maybe right it's like the ben simmons situation maybe possibly oh okay i know you need to go to bed but joe titty 
has such a great accent. We're, we're, we'll take a quick a quick question and get on out of here. Quick question. Okay. I won all my bets tonight and Wisconsin won. We can go. Okay. I love it. I love the energy. Joe. Hey, guys. A couple of quick ones. Um, you, there was a question earlier on the, uh, the pod about what would happen if a transgender woman entered in the Olympics. And I can tell you it's already happened. <laughs> no, what <laughs> happens if they come in and dominate was the um what was the spirit of the question, not just if it yeah. happens. Like what it, like Leah Thomas for a while at least was just like winning by like races by over twenty seconds. It yeah. was it was uh it was like if um an NBA player played in the WNBA. Yeah, and then it would force the the media into a very awkward dynamic. It would be, I don't know if I want it to happen, but I definitely would like to see the media reaction to it just as a social experiment. I feel like I would learn a lot, I guess is what I'm saying. Well, so just just to clear the record, you are aware of the existence of Laurel Hubbard, uh, the weightlift from New Zealand. Okay, cool. Um, The other one that I just kind of wanted to point out is uh, just on the Woj Windy thing. Um, I just wondered if uh, any of you, either of you, listened to Woj, uh, sorry, Wendy's most recent pod, and I thought he was particularly effusive of the reporting of everybody, uh, Ramona Shelburne and David Menemann. Um, and I thought maybe that's uh, is is that Wendy's is that Wendy's way of expressing his displeasure, being particularly effusive about other people and no commenting. Um, I didn't hear it, but probably yeah. You know, it's funny. Somebody sent me a Reddit link of people discussing that podcast, but I myself have not heard the podcast. That would not shock me if that was the correct interpretation. I mean, Jesus, Woj went on TV and said this guy's reporting isn't true. You know, this is – how can you – listen to podcasts, Ethan? Not sports podcasts, no. I don't listen to any sports podcasts. I think um, don't really listen to very many. Yeah. Um, which, you know, is probably derelict in my responsibility. But I don't know. I, it's just – it's weird to be talking on one right now and <laughs> that, I don't that many of them, but it's not like my consumption habits. I would listen to them sometimes when I was uh, more covering the NBA um, because it felt like I needed to keep up on things. And I would sometimes go, oh, I got to inject some Nate Duncan podcast into my brain right now on this particular team. Um, and once I stopped with that, I, I stopped listening as much, uh, you know, it's just, yeah, I, but I love podcasts. I listen to podcasts. Um, I'm always looking for an excuse to do the dishes, you know, but yeah, I, I, I listen to music yeah. when I do the dishes. Music is such a thought blocker though. That's, that's my issue with music, but that's a different take for a different day. Joe, are you out of takes? Are you out of questions? Is that about it? Well, no, so I, I wish I could say yes and let you go to bed, but. But I've yeah. got another take that's just bubbled up. Okay. While you were while you were while you were saying that, I just sort of you've often talked about how the coverage of uh, the coverage of basketball um, doesn't seem to promote the game, and and this is certainly I, I feel like something that's come through from you know Nate Jones and Amin and, and stuff like that is this oversaturation of coverage of the transaction game. Mm. And I was sitting there listening to this pod with Wendy and Ramona. And and you just mentioned that you know if you needed to like basically up your 
up your hoop IQ, you'd chuck on Nate Duncan. Um, and I thought, I thought to myself when I was when I was listening to, it, I was like, I wonder if that's sort of why the coverage skews that way. You know, you've got. I feel like the the, the basketball nerd um, sort of <laughs> the basketball nerd sort of section is quite well covered by a lot of independent broadcasters, mm. and and perhaps it would be fair to say that. You know, now the reporters, that the area of expertise that they have that cannot be replicated by me sitting at home watching the game, right? Nate Duncan doesn't probably need to go to a game to have outstanding analysis, right? He doesn't. And yet, and yet, but, and yet he does because he's an animal. But yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. well, I, 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 I would if I could. On the, on the transaction reporting game. I, I think Joe's making a, a great observation here on just comparative advantage i, I think it's yeah this- you know what i mean if you're if you're ramona shelburne what's your comparative advantage it's not real i don't really listen to ramona shelburne for her hoop insights right like i listen to her because she's got the goss man and i enjoy it like i think she's a great personality but like her comparative advantage isn't like the game you know, well, her analysis. She, she can write. She can write a great article. I learned a lot from her. I mean, the thing I learned from her when I was younger is uh, to use scenes. Uh, not everybody knows to do that. Um, they a lot of people, especially men, it tends to be an information dump. And Ramona was always anchoring the situation in a scene. And I remember when I was just starting, maybe twenty thirteen. I was just okay. Well, how do you do that? What do you do? You know, she can write. She can do that, but there just isn't as much faith in that kind of coverage uh, upstairs these days that, mm. that that people will wait around to read a long article. Um, and I think that's untrue, and I think that's a vital part of how people connect to the sport. And when you're watching these games on broadcast, the broadcasters, when they're referencing things about the players, it's because either they read an article or somebody in their production team did, and that's what they use. And so you you definitely lose something from the promotion of the game when everybody loses faith in the story. People understand everything through stories. And well, I want to go on a riff about why we value these scoops. So mm. for a long time, you know, think about like towns with multiple newspapers. The ultimate kind of badge of a reporter would be to get something into your newspaper that the competitor didn't have that day. And they had to freaking wait to like at least the afternoon or evening and maybe even until the next morning to catch up to what you put out into the marketplace. So I understand in that era why it was something that was like heavily valued because it really put into um, the market that you were talking and plugged in. But now when you're beating someone, like when, when a victory on the scoreboard is winning by as little as literally five seconds and like maybe up to a minute, minute and a half, it just doesn't seem like that useful of a service. And so I don't know how like, works in the framework of a company or why ESPN wants to say they got something first when even if they get it second by 90 seconds, they claim credit for it institutionally. Well, the way it happened was that John Skipper, when he ran ESPN, felt humiliated by it, that on draft night, which was an ESPN production, Woj was breaking all the stories of who the draft selection was going to be before Mark Stein did. 
and it was, Hey, we need to not look bad. I mean, I, I, I'd like to think that there was more business sense behind uh, the deal than that. But sometimes at the top, it's just how people feel, I suppose. And they might have their own justification and maybe it has something to do with social media and Instagram and who knows what, but it's hard to argue with the results that since they went in this direction, their viewership is half of what it was. And that's really what pays the bills is the viewership. I don't, I don't think that their web coverage is like one of the biggest variables in the viewership, though. Um, it's a I good question. That, I think that these things are correlated, but I don't think... Uh, you you think Durant going to the Warriors is maybe more of an explainer than the all-news break, all-the-time direction? He, he, yes, Um uh, I do. I think a lot of things are. I mean, the the fact that the regular season they've told us time and again it doesn't matter. That's yeah. A um, yeah. So you get invested in the whole story arc with the NFL. You're on it from week one through the end. Nobody just comes along in the playoffs. You know, it's. Uh, but it, it's just it's still weird to me. Uh, um that the scoops like matter that much and I chase them if I can get them but I've kind of over the last two or three years tried to tailor my energies away from the scoop and more towards the feature I think Joe made a great observation in general though and it has something to do with what's gone on in the industry and also why I've to a degree jumped out of the industry I can't keep up with the Nate Duncans of this world I can't I don't have the talent to do it. I'm good at other things, so I'm going to try to do other things. But as far as basketball analysis is concerned, I cannot compete with somebody who notices things on the granular level at the speed that Nate does. And if there's just an entire generation of people like that out there um, on their couches around the world, uh, there's just really no way. And so I'm all about trying to find where my comparative advantage is. And I think there's something... There's something to that with a lot of these reporters that they can at least have the access. And so they're going to lean on the thing that they can do because it gets tougher and tougher every year. Even if interest in the NBA is declining, it seems like the analysis in many ways is actually improving. Yeah, I think that that's probably true. I I do think that like if I – yeah, Ramona's always like a welcome guest to Joe's point. Like you do want to hear – what she has to say because um, she, she'll really she real she will um like as a podcast guest or radio guest explain things in a way that is like one of one to her. Yeah, she's just got she, crazy CEO energy too. She's a force. But yeah, Joe. Yeah, no, no. I was thinking that that's that's good because I want to um like there's a small amount of pushback there, and that was good because I don't want to make my point go too far with it um there's there's almost three categories that i'm starting to think of you know i'm just doing this off the top of my head but you know you've got your pure transaction sort of type guys um so that's your woge then you've got your hoop nerd stuff so we'll put zach Lowe as the sort of archetype there and then you've got like the people who are Tap, like I love Amin's point about how like how stupid it is to tell people you know what why is it news if I would have found out you know ten minutes later but yeah. um but 
Ramona and Baxter Holmes and those sort of investigative journalists, they tell me things that I would never have known otherwise. That's got real value to me. Um, but overall, overall, um, you know, that's the value that to me, someone like Ramona is going to provide. And you're right. She is a really good writer and she has a, she's a cool guest, man. She just seems like she'd be such a cool hang, you know, um, I've, I've hung out with her. She is, she is cool to hang out with. <laughs> she's, she's I believe it, man. Yeah. Um, you know, to what you're saying though, Woj is kind of the, the boss of NBA coverage there, but I think their most valuable employee is Zach Lowe. Um, I don't, maybe that's not, maybe that's not the hottest of takes, but if Zach Lowe went to Substack, if, if Lowe opened up his own newsletter, I know he would be printing money. I just, I just know that. I know he would be able to do that. I don't know if I can be so confident about some other people, uh, over the, it's a tough racket to be clear. It's like, I'm not judging them in that way. It wasn't easy for me, um, to do it, but, uh, I just, I just with him, it's su- such a no-brainer that it would be easiest for him by far, and I think that probably means that he brings the most value to that operation. Just if I'm doing a quick and dirty measure. Why do you think Bill Simmons is still so valuable? I mean, I have my thoughts, but like Bill Simmons is like not a great analyst at all. Um, but you're asking has, what about Bill, what's the question you're asking about Bill Simmons? What, what was it? Well, what is it? But Bill Simmons is, is super valuable as an NBA. Like if he just focused on NBA, he would be super valuable to somebody else to hire, right? What? Where, why do you think it is? You uh, know, I'm why? trying to compare him to these other archetypes. He drives a big audience by himself. He's one of the most influential American writers, I would say. Um, well, yes, but why? You know, like, why? That's a is fascinating he... question. I was even thinking, I'm going to have Freddie DeBoer on the podcast tomorrow. And we're just, one of the things we're going to talk about is writing. Because writers are bashful about it. And they're insecure about it. So even though comedians always get together and talk about being a comedian and what you do. Writers don't tend to do that on a podcast. And I, I might want to talk with Freddie about, about what he does. Cause he's pretty confident. He knows he's good. Um, but I was thinking about bringing up, bringing up bill because it's an interesting history with Simmons. I, I am way more pro Simmons. I feel than a lot of my peers are. Um, just in conversations. And I think there's this weird kind of looking down at the pros thing of, uh, because he's so colloquial or he was so colloquial with the pros. And I, I don't know what, that there's a dismissiveness of that's not real writing, but real writing is demonstrated. I believe by one's ability to resonate, build an audience. And if this was just so easy and anybody could have done it, then other people would have did it. But it was just one guy who became insanely popular in the mid-aughts in the way he did. And to me, that's great writing. It, it doesn't have to be... Well, him and Peter yeah. King, the two of them. Yeah. Well, I feel, and yet I don't feel the same way about Peter King. What is that, Ryan? Because um, you're not a football first guy. Well, I would meet <laughs> Peter King all the time, though, you know, after Sunday. I would read Monday Morning Quarterback. So, yeah, I... I, I, I'm getting totally digressive. You know, Bill runs his own operation right now. So it's, what, what was the question with Bill again? I'm, I'm off. Well, it's why. Why is he so popular? 
Why is he yeah. so popular? What is his what is the offer quoi? specifically that's different, you know, to to other voices? That he has cover first the mover advantage, and that's big. He, he yep, was the he first like blogger, basically, mm. and he is. Um, people are interested in the cult of Bill Simmons as much as they're interested in whatever his like nominal analysis is. And so it's, uh, it's like a personality driven thing, almost like how people get attached to like pro wrestlers or I don't know, the office or something like that. It's, um, the, the like kind of the the persona of Bill Simmons, even when he's like annoying you, keeps people coming back. And, and everybody loves doing the bad imitation of him. I was even thinking about doing it when we were talking about how you guess the ratings, how it was the Simmons version of guessing uh, the lines with Cousin okay, Sal. Sal, Sal, I'm going to go. I love it. You know, it's just part of the culture. And I think what gets lost sometimes after somebody's uh, everywhere is the sense of how influential they were. Um, In a way, it's funny if I'm comparing Simmons and and Zach Lowe and I do it self-consciously because it'll be weird if it ever gets back to them. Uh, they were both very influential because the MBA writing space, I think, was was generative and kind of punched above its weight in sports writing. Uh, Ryan might disagree as somebody with a broader view. I don't know. And in a way, I like the Bill Simmons influence on writers better than the low influence on writers because – Writers doing a Bill Simmons can be more readable and it's easier for them to replicate it than what Lowe does. Like people trying to do Zach Lowe and when they fail, I find it to be very dry and not interesting in the way that he can do it because so much of what he does is just powered by being sharp and having this this versatile skill set of being able to be a cap guy and a great interviewer and actually watching the film and everything else. Um, but with Bill, because his voice was so natural and it was one of the first to be so natural, everybody had kind of a way you do it in sports writing that I think it allowed a lot of people to explore that space and to be a little bit more casual. And and he wasn't constrained by the deadlines of like a newspaper column, the internet all of a sudden, whereas like newspapers come out on a set schedule, the radio show is the same time every day. The TV show is the same time every day. The internet all of a sudden opened up a world where you could be creative on your own time and the output, it like didn't matter when you released something or when you worked on something. And so he was somebody who probably wouldn't have fit into a set schedule framework and been able to be nearly as like kind of creatively explorative as he was um on this like kind of wide open frontier that hadn't yet been like totally corporatized yeah can can i make a suggestion Hmm? Uh, can i i'll I'll throw in my my two cents as to why i think as to what i think is you know he's got lots of little things and i agree with everything you guys have said but when he's at his best when he cuts open a vein and he articulates his, his his emotional perspective, not just in the moment, 
He's phenomenal. Like, I mean, that's what drives uh, a narrative. It's, it's pretty indivisible, isn't it? A narrative art from how you how you place a sporting event in the context of like your emotional life. Like the the, the piece that I really remember about like, the first one I remember. He wrote a piece about Len Bias dying when he was 16. At the mm. time, I was 16. It was 2002. It was like a, I don't know, I can't remember. I'm pretty sure it was 2002. Maybe I've got the, got the dates wrong. But, like, he talked about being a 16-year-old kid relating to Len Bias dying. And I remember being, I thought, I think I was 16, reading it, just becoming a Celtics fan in no small part because of Simmons. And that, that ability to articulate his emotions and place it gives them an ability to me to place things in a historical context when he takes his time to actually consider it. I don't think he's so great in the moment. I'll still listen, but when he really does that, I think for me, he, um, he, it's like he creates a toll, a tie for your soul to what he's writing about. And, um, and I just, I think that's something that's, that's something that you can never really get enough of. And you can't fake that. It might be ineffable. Uh, it's the irony with writing. It's it's difficult to describe why something works, but it just it just works. It just worked. It worked pre social media. I thought I was the only Simmons fan until I realized that everybody was right. back when I was in college. Um, yeah, it's I don't know. Now I'm just going to be inarticulate and rambling. This is probably a good a good now, time. To end now it. we can go to bed. Now we can go to bed. Joe, you can start <laughs> your day or whatever the hell time it is out there. Thanks to everybody. Fun stuff is always. If you everybody- made it this far, I I really appreciate it. <laughs> I really really appreciate everybody who made it this far. Uh, great talk as always. We'll see you soon enough. At least next week. Take care, everybody. All right, bye guys. Bye, Ethan. Thank you.